This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to TechSing 110, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to James Altucher. James is a serial entrepreneur. He founded StockPicker.com and sold it to TheStreet.com. He's regularly interviewed in the financial press, for example, The Wall Street Journal and MarketWatch. He's managing director of Formula Capital. He's written five books on trading, including Trade Like a Hedge Fund, Trade Like Warren Buffett, the Wall Street Journal Guide to Investing in the Apocalypse. And to be honest, that's only the half of it. So quite a portfolio of work there. James, thanks for joining us on the show and welcome to Texing. Thanks for having me on the show. So, so James, um, you, you kind of popped out of nowhere for me uh, over the last couple of weeks. It seems like every time I looked on Hacker News, you had a post that was drifting towards the top of the page. And I don't know if you're even aware of Hacker News that people are submitting your stories there, but... Uh, I'd be curious, you know, why are you um, blocking so much lately? Because you've you've been successful in all these other areas, and you're a published author. Um, what's the interest in blogging? Well, you know, there's several reasons. One is I kind of think the publishing industry is dead. So, you know, maybe let's say I wrote a book right now, uh, top ten ways to make a gazillion dollars. <laughs> you know, probably a thousand people would read that book. That that's how book sales go in the financial publishing world. You know, somewhere between one and 10,000 people would read it. I'll write one article on my blog and 10,000 people will read it. So there's, there's really no point in, you, you, you never write a book for the money unless you're writing Freakonomics or a bestseller or Harry Potter or whatever. So you never write a book for the money. You write a book because you want people to read what you have to say and you want to build an audience and you think you add value to people's lives. You know, hopefully that's one of the reasons why you're writing a book. And I feel like I can add the most value by sharing some of my experiences via a blog format rather than a book format that no one, that's going to take a lot of time. I'll get no money for I'll get like, you know, crap all day from the publisher and then finally nobody will read it. Now, my last <laughs> publisher is great. The Wall Street Journal is great. Uh, I've written a post actually about my experiences with my first four books uh, call, called basically, I think the title was um, Why I Still Write Books Even Though I've Lost Money on Every Single Book I've Written. But uh, uh, so that's one of the reasons. The other reason is I think people right now are a little sick. I think. I think we're all going through this post-traumatic stress syndrome from 2008 and even from earlier, from 2001, 2002, really, that there's this quiet despair that we've never been able to overcome and the, and the financial collapse has underlined it even more. And so I think people no longer want to know, oh, should I buy Microsoft stock versus Google stock? I think people want to know that it's okay that they've failed a little bit, that it's okay that uh, you know, times are occasionally going to be tough, but that there are ways and methods of kind of getting back to your core self that will help you move on to being a success. And it's that kind of message that I try to convey, and I do it in two ways. One is I, I relate my own personal experiences with both failure and success, mostly failure, because with any kind of persistence, it's mostly going to be failure, unless you're Larry Page or someone like that. 
And uh, the other way is through, you know, what I think are the life lessons I've learned from these experiences. So, so, and I, I think people have benefited so far, at least from the uh, feedback that I've been getting. So, James, when did you, when did you start and, and how did you get here? Well, uh, it depends what you mean by start. Uh, can you define the word start a little bit? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering what that was meant too. Do you mean blogging or do you mean in his professional I guess, career? I, sorry, I guess what I meant is the, the, the journey, the spiritual journey of being an entrepreneur who's decided that they're going to try and um, become financially wealthy through that, through that path. And I know that you've gone through failures and, and then you've gone through successes and, and here you are. So, <laughs> no. Do you want the, the long version, the medium version or the short version? Let, let, let's go for the long version because, I, I, frankly, I was going. I, I was trying to prepare for this interview, and I was going through all of the different things that you've done, and I, I, I had a hard time figuring out where the hell to even start. So um, it'd be nice if medium you could just medium long, uh, yeah, medium, yeah, if, medium if, well. If, if, if you could give us sort of the, the, the you know, give us a framework for you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of your story, and then we can maybe get into some of the details. Yeah. Okay, and then and then the challenge I have is: do I go backwards or forwards? <laughs> <laughs> because if I started, so so basically, before I was doing anything related to to finance or blogging or anything, I was interviewing prostitutes for a living for HBO. But that's 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 halfway. In, in, in what capacity? So I you mean, peaked. Basically, just, you're saying you peaked. Are you talking about for HBO executives, or are you talking about for an HBO documentary? <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably both. But uh, I'm really talking mostly for for. Well, for the HBO's website and HBO documentaries. But um, before that, I, was, uh, I, I studied computer science in school. I was uh, thrown out of graduate school in computer science, actually. Uh, and wait, wait, how, why were you thrown out? Well, uh, you want the short story, the medium story, or the long story? No. Whatever you feel like telling. Because I, 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 I read that in one of your posts, and you didn't really go into the details. I'd be curious. What happened there? Well, I, was, I, I basically, you know, you always want to, you always want to, enter into fields where you admire the other people in the field that you're in. And I kind of looked around me and in the academic world and I didn't really, it, you know, you know, you had to, you had to, you have to sort of look ahead into the future and, and see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I didn't, and I was working really hard and there was no light at the end of the tunnel. The great thing was the tunnel itself because grad school is great. Like you don't, you know, you get a full scholarship, you don't have to do anything until you get thrown out. And then, uh, uh, you know, and then eventually you have to do a PhD. Well, I didn't want to wait around five or six years to do a, a PhD, but I was, you know, I, I, I was fully funded for the year and uh, I wasn't doing well in the classes just because I wasn't interested at all in, in computer science and, and where it was heading. And so I was just programming on my own projects. I let the clock run out and they basically said, uh, when you reach, when you become a little bit more mature, you can, you can come back, but for now your funding is cut off. You and didn't have the passion. I didn't have the passion and I, and I still don't have the maturity to, <laughs> and, and believe it or not, they still, this is 17 or eight or 20 years later. They still occasionally ask me the guy who wrote the letter, uh, that who asked me to leave, he still calls me up. We talk about once a semester and he says, Hey, do you want to come back and get your PhD now? And <laughs> I, where was, where, where was this? This was at Carnegie Mellon. And and uh, and, 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 and uh, it, is it a field that you just lost interest in, or, or yeah? What? I mean, I mean, it was great when I first got there. My office mate was uh, uh, it, it was the uh, it was a computer called Chip Test, and the creator of this computer called Chip Test. And what Chip Test did was Chip Test was a very good 
chess computer. And IBM came along and said to my office mate and his computer, we're just going to, you're going to get your PhD and we're just going to absorb IBM and change the name from chip test to deep blue. So it was, it was great while I was in grad school and he was there because I was just playing this chess computer all day long and that was fun. <laughs> Um, then he left and I got interested in other things. I, I got very interested in writing actually. I wanted to write a novel. So I, I quickly wrote five completely unpublishable novels. And, uh, but that forced me to avoid going to classes because you can't write five novels and study computers. That's crazy. So <laughs> I, I eventually, the clock ran out and I left grad school, but I stayed in Pittsburgh for a few more years as a programmer. And then I joined HBO as a programmer. And then one of the first things I did at HBO was I said to them, look, A, you need HBO.com. So they had homeboxoffice.com, but there was nobody, or there was a medical company called HBO and Company, and they owned HBO.com. So, so HBO paid a nice big number for, for HBO.com. And then I said, okay, well, now you do all this great original TV shows. Why don't I do for you original web shows? And so uh, they said, what sort of web show should we do? And I said to them, how about this idea I have called 3 a.m.? And it's a long story how I came to that idea. But basically it was me walking around New York City at 2 or 3 in the morning with a camera crew on a Tuesday night. And it's critical that it was a Tuesday or Wednesday night because if you were out, you know, at a Justin or Jason on, on a, at 3 in the morning on a Tuesday night, there's probably a reason, you know. <laughs> You mean, at the very least, it means you don't have to go to work the next day or something else is going on or you're looking for something you shouldn't be looking for at 3 in the morning. And that's usually what I found. And I did that for HBO for about two years. Uh, I shot it as a pilot for them as well that they never aired. How did, you, was, how did you get, as, as just a, a programmer and a coder in HBO, how did you get the ear of the executives to well, you know, you take just that had, risk? You know, it was funny. I would do things like literally walk into the office of, the CEO or the head of the, the executive vice president of all their TV shows or whatever. And I would say to them whatever I wanted to say, because nobody knew about the internet. And I said, I have to show you this new thing. And, uh, so nobody would stop me. And, you know, people would come up to me afterwards, like, and say, you know, you can't do that. But <laughs> if someone tells you, you can't do something, it usually means they can't do something, not you. <laughs> Like right. they're just projecting their own fears, like they can't do it. So how could you do it? But the reality is, you know, we're all human beings. We can all, you know, as long as we don't hurt anybody, we can all do whatever we want to do. So, right, right. And you, you mean because you actually, I mean, you did it. It's not like you can't. You're like, I just did it. I just walked in there and did it. So I did it, and it was great for me because I got, I got several things. One is I got to have the funnest job I've ever had. The other thing is I got fairly well known between. Uh, among the internet community and there were other Time Warner companies. So that allowed me to start a company on the side, uh, creating websites for other entertainment companies. So HBO, of course, was my client. But then t I did TimeWarner.com. I did all of New Line Films. I did stuff for Warner Brothers. Uh, I did, uh, then I, we branched out to Miramax, Disney, uh, a bunch of sites for Sony, BMG. So we were doing a ton of websites for entertainment companies. And uh, ultimately, I left HBO, uh, you know, started hiring employees, built up to about 40 employees, sold that company uh, to another website development company. And uh, suddenly, I ha found myself in a position that I'd never been in before. I had more than $10 in my bank account. 
and I didn't know what to do with it. So I had to learn about finance because I promptly lost all the money. I don't want to say promptly. It took a while, but I ended up losing just about 99% of the money I had you know, worked hard to earn. How did you lose it? Well, basically, the only thing I knew was internet stocks. So what do you do when internet stocks go down? Well, of course, you buy more of them. <laughs> so in the summer of 2000, and I'm not even exaggerating, and this is a sad story to tell. And, I, don't, and you know, when, I have to say, when I tell stories like this, part of the reaction of commenters and stuff is like, oh, this guy's a loser. Or why would anybody listen to him? But look, for me, I'm an honest guy, and I think people benefit from more from honesty than dishonesty. So the way I lost the money was essentially buying internet stocks. In the summer of 2000, I, was, I probably lost about a million dollars a week cash for the entire summer. And wow. uh, so, so early 2001, I suddenly look around and I'm devastated. I bought myself a, a 5,000 square foot penthouse apartment in 1999 and I was going to lose my home. There was no way out of it. And, you know, I, I, I realized at that point, I didn't know anything about stocks or trading stocks. So I did what I always do in situations where I don't know anything is I wrote some software to help me out. So I downloaded all the statistics and data on stock market and stock prices since 1945. And I, uh, I, I built a bunch of trading system models and I, I started trading. Uh, based on these models where I would make no decision at all. So long or short, I would make no decision at all. And uh, at the same time, I put up my apartment for sale. And so we were about to get an offer on the apartment and the people were coming in to make the offer. It was September 10th, 2011, and they got delayed somehow. And then 9-11 happened. And of course, 9-11 was horrible for everybody, but I was living, I lived on Church Street right next to the World Trade Center. So you couldn't even... I mean, it was just, it was officially part of the crime scene. Like you couldn't even enter my block for months afterwards. And, you know, in the meantime, the stock market had crashed and it was just devastating. Like for me, I mean, it was devastating for everybody, for the entire country. For me also, I was practically suicidal. I had one child. I had another child on the way. I had, you know, I had a tiny bit of money left, but I had probably forty or fifty thousand dollars a month in expenses that I had you know trapped myself into that I couldn't get away from because I unless I was gonna default on a house that had equity value in it you know and I didn't want to give up the house so I started very aggressively trading my models with leverage and fortunately it worked out I mean I was up many multiples of a hundred percent in 2002 which was a great training ground because that was at the time you know, the worst bear market year ever. Now, now was this before or after you started trading uh, under Victor Niederhofer? Uh, right before then. Okay, because, you know, I, I imagine few of our listeners will be familiar with people like Niederhofer. I mean, I've, I have a background in trading, so I know who he is, and I read Education of a Speculator. But um, I'd be curious, when you, when you tell your story, though, um, please include huh, that bit, because I think that would be interesting. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, so I was trading, and... Uh, but it wasn't enough, you know. Trading, you know, as you know from your own experience, trading is is brutal. I mean, it. I mean, I could, if you showed me like a brain full of holes and 
gray matter and whatever, I would tell you either that brain has the worst Alzheimer's disease or that's a 28-year-old trader because <laughs> trading just brutalizes you, particularly day trading where, I mean, every tick of the market I felt in my body, like I felt my blood pulsing through my body every day, which I don't know, even know. Yeah, well, well, they say that, you know, I think the a loss is two times psychologically, psychologically damaging is a an equivalent win is psychologically reinforcing. So I think unless- that's true in general, but I think for me it was more like 50 times because let's <laughs> say I had, you know, I was playing with big leverage. I had to. So let's say I made $10,000 on it. Like I played for, I played for very small wins. So when you play for very small wins, the downside of that is one out of 10 times you're going to have a very big loss. So, but hopefully you have enough high probability small wins that it makes up for that. So I was doing that very well, but still every time I had a, one of those losses, I could never rationalize, well, look, your next 10 are probably going to be wins. I would be like, oh no, if I have another loss like this tomorrow, I'm just going to have to buy a gun and blow myself up or something. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do. So, so I would get re- really scared every time I was like down money. You know, fortunately, I mean, I probably had a remarkable run in 2002, which lasted through 2004, 2005. But, you know, at some point in the middle of 2002, I decided, you know what, this is just hurting my brain and my body too much. And so even though I was doing, I was doing everything right, I was exercising to keep in shape, I was eating healthy, I was going to sleep early, I was, you know, emotionally at least keeping all my relationships on even keel. Uh, if, if, and this is really important. Like if anybody caused me any hassle, then that was it. They needed to be dropped from the Rolodex. Like I was not talking to anybody even if they were family, friends, didn't matter. I wasn't dealing with anybody who was causing me any hassle. Uh, mentally, I was writing down ideas every day. I was programming every day. Uh, spiritually, I was I was meditating. I would heck, I would even pray for my trades to work out. So <laughs> I, you know, I really wanted to make sure I had just solid. I couldn't, um, you know, I couldn't give it my best shot because I had my my family and my life really at at, at stake there, and I had another kid. Another kid was born in March 2002, so I had a little baby running around or crapping around, whatever babies do. <laughs> so, you know, pe- people forget like babies seem like wonderful things, but like when you're when you're down on your luck or when you feel like you're down on your luck, all a baby is is you invited some some foreign citizen who's one foot tall who doesn't speak any English to come and just sit in your living room and like crap on the floor all day long. Like nobody in their right mind would do that. And yet that's what having a baby is. So, so I had this situation and I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to better my situation. So I, part of my daily regimen every day was coming up with ideas of people I could write to who could help me out. So I wrote a letter to 20 hedge fund managers and said, can I meet you? And I wrote a letter to guys like Jim Cramer and said, can I meet you? And nobody responded. So I took it one step further. I wrote, I I came up with ideas for them, for them to improve their businesses. And I wrote to them again. I said, here's 10 ideas to improve your business. You don't need to call me, talk to me, do anything with me, but I think these ideas will help you. And they were completely legitimate, sincere ideas. And I had spent months kind of building my idea muscle to, to help these people with their ideas. Not only that, I probably read something like 300 books on trading. I'd written you know, a, a ton of software, thousands of pages of software modeling the market. So I, I knew what I was 
doing it. Well, you, you, you said, I, I know you emailed some uh, article ideas to Jim Cramer and you, re, you uh, sent some trading ideas to Victor Niederhofer. Who else did you uh, send uh, unsolicited advice to? Uh, probably every hedge fund manager in the business, you know, maybe 50, 50 guys you could think of, you know, all, right. everybody, Stevie Cohen, George Soros, Carl Icahn, everybody you could think of. Wow. Uh, okay. Victor Niederhofer's brother, Roy Niederhofer. Uh, it's that same thing of, as walking into the HBO office and basically just having the chutzpah to, to take, take life, you know, and need, just go yeah, for yeah, it. Instead of saying, I need to show you this, you're like, you're doing the same thing, right? I need to tell you this. This is something that, you That's do. a good point. You know, and I, I actually never thought of the parallel, but it was, it's the same thing. Instead of just coming in and saying, hey, I just wanted to introduce myself, I came in with an actual idea that made sense to them. And now it didn't make sense to everybody. Most people didn't respond to me. But with Victor, I actually sent full trading systems. And he said, this is interesting. And he, we started corresponding. And he started asking me to write up different trading systems. And, and then he asked me to start trading his own personal money and I guess some of his fund money. And then um, with Jim Cramer, I gave him 10 ideas of articles I thought he should write. And he's, he came back to me right away. And he said, these are great exclamation point, exclamation point, why don't you write these articles? And so I started writing for thestreet.com, and I was so happy. Let me tell you, I got that. They were paying $200 per article, and I, I still have right in front of me the framed article, uh, the framed check for $200, you know, and he signed the back of the check when, uh, when I sold stockpicker.com to them many years later. But, uh, you know, and then from the street, so, so then my career kind of took two, two or really three different paths. Um, Can I ask a quick question before you get into that? Because you, you started, you started using uh, other people's money on your models. Um, Did that feel different to, to using your own money on your, with your models? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Like I was a lot more scared actually. I did not want to lose Victor's (laughs) money. So, so the good thing was I sold my house. So I wasn't like in immediate danger of death. Uh, This is by early 2003 now. But I also really didn't want to lose Victor's money. So I remember there was one time I actually broke the rules of my system. And it was um, the day, I want to say it was the day we toppled the Saddam Hussein statue in March. And the market shot up for a second and then it fell and it kept falling. And we, we were getting close to the October 09 lows again. And I just kept doubling down. I knew every stock was trading below cash. Uh, the market was dirt cheap. So I, my, sort of the Warren Buffett side of me took over instead of the system side, because by that point I had done a serious study of Warren Buffett's uh, trading style. And uh, I just used as much leverage as possible. And then fortunately the market turned upwards and I was up 100% that month. I ended up being up for the year about 130 or 140% for Victor, because after that month, I just get went back to my usual style of flipping small wins. Yeah, because the that obviously could have gone either way for you. Because it was the the old saying is that the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So even if your thesis, your trading thesis was right on, you know the fact that you were doubling down and using all this leverage really risk increased your risk because things could have just stayed out of whack for a little longer than things should have for any any reason that you could explain, and then you're done, and it would have been a much different story. Yeah, I think I had about a week left, but you know the market was. Um, uh, 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 hold on one second. Sorry. Uh, you know the the market the market was behaving very strangely then though. Like the market would start off, there would be a rumor 
that they found Saddam Hussein, and like S and P futures would shoot up forty points. Uh, so I, if and then the rumor would turn out not to be true, and the market would sort of drift back down. So I had this feeling that people were done with the market illness that it had happened since two thousand. They wanted an excuse to go up. So I felt pretty comfortable, and you know, and again, you had. Every company was trading for less than ten times earnings. Small cap companies, even the street dot com, was trading for less than the cash they had in the bank, and they had no debt, and they were earning money. So, uh, you know, I just had a good sense of it, and I was correct. Okay, I, I want to quickly ask you about your uh, trading system. Um, I, like I mentioned, I have a background in trading, and in particular in developing automated trading systems and applying, you know, machine learning techniques to to trade to building trading systems. So, my, I'm curious to ask. What what was your methodology for building uh, these trading systems, and, and how did you build them? Uh, you know, basically, I would load up the price data of all stocks and stock futures and so on, and I would try out different ideas based on what I saw in books. So, I, and like I said, I, I probably read close to, I would say about 200 different books on trading, and I'd read tons of books about traders and trading and trading systems and Warren Buffett and other great investors and, you know, a lot of investors talk about their approach and, and what trading systems work for them. And so my new philosophy was I would not trade anything unless I had fully tested it and back tested it via software. And so the basic system that always seemed to work, and this worked particularly well from 2000 to 2003, is buy all dips. So even 9-11, if you, you know, after 9-11, the market like crashed for the week. But if you, but the market would always make it a, a, an attempt to move up at the beginning of the day. It would gap down every day, and you always buy the gap downs, and you sell them after a few minutes. And that worked every day, the week after 9-11. And then, of course, on the Friday after the week after 9-11, the market just zoomed for the next two or three months after that. And so I was always playing a strategy of uh, you know, buying dips and, and essentially buying volatility. Were you, what, what were, was this just end of day data or were you trading tick data or what, what, what kind of data were you using to do this and out and do the analysis? Um, I was using, uh, everything, tick data, open, high, low, close data, uh, uh, you know, minute bars, hour bars. I was trying everything possible to figure out what would work. I was also looking at all the fundamental data. So does it work better on? Low PE stocks, high PE stocks, no PE stocks. Uh, you know, uh, just essentially, I was. I probably that's all I did all day and night was write software. And, and, and when you were writing the software, what were you built writing the stuff from scratch using? You know, C plus plus or something, or were you using like a off the shelf? I was using a, a package called Wealth Lab. That was a small company, just two or three guys, and they actually asked me to go on their board. Uh, and be involved a little bit in their company, which I wish I had done. I was just, I was too uh, all anxious with my own trading to really get involved in someone else's company. But I was, I was the, the premier user of their software. Like nobody could even, I, I mean, I was churning out trading systems every day. And some of those trading systems I was posting on their website and having discussions with other developers. So that's partly why they uh, asked me to go on their board. They, they ended up getting bought by Fidelity in, I think it was 2004 and it's or two or, or late 2003 and it's funny because actually I was at that time thinking about trying to acquire the whole company um but uh ended up uh ended up just 
Yeah, I, I remember. I remember Wealth Lab. There was a whole bunch of like uh, Wealth Lab, and what was it like Quant Studio, Smart Quant, and uh, there were a few of these sort of like uh, you know, obviously sort of like not not full blown trade stations, but smaller you know trading analysis. Yeah, systems. trade stations, Meta Stock. Like there were a couple of those. Wealth Lab, I always thought was the best. I I tested them all out, and I think that's why Fidelity bought Wealth Lab. And because I, I in my first book, I I demonstrated a lot of Wealth Lab systems. And my first book was called Trade Like a Hedge Fund, and it was twenty different trading systems that had worked for me. And uh, Fidelity that bought Wealth Lab liked the book so much, they asked me to speak at these different conferences for them. And I've been speaking for them ever since. So since two thousand four, uh, I've been. Going on these little trips to speak for Fidelity. I have a question. Did your did your trading have you ever noticed your trading had affected the very market itself so that it kind of altered the predictions of the trading? Uh, yes, particularly when I was trading stocks, and this was when I was just learning the system in two thousand two or two thousand and one. When I was trading stocks that weren't as liquid as others, like tiny stocks, for instance, they didn't have enough volume. And when I was trading bigger sizes, so ultimately I was trading up to 50, 60 million worth uh, of other people's money. And that would tend to affect the market a little bit. Not a huge amount, but every now and then what was supposed to happen in the system wouldn't. And I suspected it was because I had, you know, $50 million worth on the ask or $50 million worth on the bid and people would get scared and run the other way. So, uh, and then I wouldn't know what to do and because the system... I'd be outside the system already, and uh, you know, so so the system would have hit the price, and I would have been filled on twenty million, but still have thirty million sitting there, and then the system would start, the, you know, the market would start to go against me, and I wouldn't know what to do because the system was already over because the price had been hit. Normally, I would have been filled, no problem, but you know, once you started playing big enough amounts, I, I wasn't filled properly, and then suddenly I was in this universe outside the system. What did you do in those scenarios? Well, uh, I would just get out. That was the safest thing to do. And you know, okay. but I, just, I just wouldn't make as much money as I would have liked. But I, I started to see that there was something wrong here. And that's when I, I you know, I was always ready to pivot uh, my business model. And so uh, I switched to managing. I knew a lot of traders by this point uh, because I'd been in the business a while and I knew people through the street.com and so on. So I switched to managing a, a fund of hedge funds instead of just managing money. So instead of me trading, which I was getting tired of anyway, uh, I started allocating to about 15 different hedge funds. And uh, so I changed my business. Wait, and this was um, when exactly? Uh, I started that in 2004. Okay, so you were trading for Niederhofer for what, like about a year? Or so? About a, a little over a year. He he stopped me when my first book came out. He was very upset. He thought maybe uh, I had given away all of my secrets and things were no longer going to work. And he thought even worse that I'd given away his secrets, which was just not true at all. And so he uh, stopped having me trade for him. Oh, so he wasn't really happy with that situation. Now, has it since been repaired or did it just end on a sour note? No, it ended on a sour note. That's <laughs> well, it. Because Niederhofer, Niederhofer is a is a huge name in the industry for our listeners who aren't familiar with the trading world, which I'm sure a lot of them aren't. Um, Victor Niederhofer, I mean, he's not Steve Jobs to the technology industry, but he's certainly a big name that everyone in the trading industry knows. I mean, he's 
He sort of, um, I guess he was a guy who found a statistical arbitrage as a sort of a science, the science of really testing trading strategies. And he's had some huge blowups and had some huge funds and some huge win, win streaks, right? I mean, I don't know. You could probably sum it up a lot better than me. Well, yeah, he, he was very, he, you know, he, he had a very statistical approach. And I, I wrote an article, actually, 10 Things I Learned from Victor Niederhofer. Like, he was always very good to me. And, you know, I was sad that he it ended on a sour note because I really didn't do anything wrong other than make him a significant amount of money. But um, <laughs> but it is it is what it is. He, he's a temperamental person. And there's a lot of, you know, a, lo- a lot of people who are that who have that level of genius, you know, could be are often temperamental. And uh, but one thing I really learned from him was the importance of just backtesting everything and making sure your statistics are correct. Well, before, okay, and, and I know we probably need to move on with the story, but I just want to ask uh, one more question about the trading stuff, uh, with, in, at least in this context. So the thing about trading, and you talk about some of the articles about how Niederhofer uh, really promoted the idea of testing everything, and I remember reading a lot about that in, in uh, his book, uh, Education of a Speculator, um, is that it seems like it would almost be easy to um, overfit your data, right? Like, or, you know, it's kind of like, if you test enough ideas, eventually you're going to find something that works just out of pure randomness. You know, if you keep testing the same data series over and over and over again, it's just like, you know, one of the problems with sort of applying machine learning techniques to trading uh, is that if you keep running a statistical search algorithm over and over on the same stream of random data, eventually it's going to find something that's going to fit. And if you do it manually over the same data series, you're kind of effectively doing the same thing. You can Yes. Oh, yeah. And that, and. and- that I learned on my own, but I learned it more with Victor. Like basically, you're always you, it's hard to avoid curve fitting. So what you have to do with trading is make sure it also matches common sense. So for instance, if you find this theory that every Super Bowl the market goes up, that doesn't really, uh, or no, if the NFL wins as opposed to the, or if the NFC wins as opposed to the AFC, then then the market goes up. If you find a correlation like that, that might just be a spurious correlation. So. It, it, there's no common sense behind it, so it's usually best ignored. But if a stock goes down four days in a row and you find that nine times out of ten this stock goes up on the fifth day, that's that makes sense. You know, stocks can't go down in a straight line. Like usually the first day, the full, you know, kind of rational market kicks in, and then after that it might be irrational. And after four days the market gets tired and you know, the, the, stock, the selling, anybody who would have sold has already sold. So stuff, so what you want to do is kind of come up with the psychological theory beforehand and then test it as opposed to um, kind of randomly testing things and seeing what works. And so, for instance, I never optimized any trading system. So optimize means find all the variables that make your system work the best. I never did that. I always worked from a viewpoint, what makes sense to my gut? And then I'm going to test that. And if it works, I'll play it. Right. And, by, and by works for me, I was very specific. Like I hated to lose money, even over the top. And Victor was sometimes upset at me about this. But if, in order for me to work on a trading system or, or to do a, play a trading system, it had to work 99 out of 100 times. So before I would even begin mm-hmm. to start trading it. Well, would you include more than one factor? So you're you're talking about one factor here. It's like, okay, you know, if it if if it gaps down and on a dip, then we buy. I mean, do you say, well, if it gaps down and volatility is over a certain amount and the PE ratio is X and something else? I mean, a certain number of factors you're going to probably overfit. Um, do you do you say you'd limit to like two or three factors or something? Uh, you know, 
you know, you have to make sure that you don't use too many factors, and you, and also you have to make sure uh, that you don't use factors that themselves are correlated. So they're really one factor disguising as two. Um, so, uh, but I was I usually just stuck with price data and occasionally day of the week data. So, like, okay. you know, if if we were down on a Friday, what would happen on a Monday? Or very important was first day of the month data because there's always uh, you know, IRA accounts that get more money on the first day of the month. So weird behavior happens, particularly if the last day of the prior month was down. So like, for instance, take a day like today. I don't know what happened to the market. Oh, it's the market's up. So, uh, but if today, if if today, if a day like today was down and tomorrow is, is March 1st is up. And if the morning was down, I would almost certainly by 11 AM, uh, be, be buying the market. Right. Right. Okay, well, you know, actually, I have one last question. It doesn't have to do with trading, but just in terms of Victor, um, you know, it's interesting that when you have a falling out with someone, especially somebody who has a really high standing, who you have a lot of respect for, and, you know, you would probably like to stay in contact with, I mean, did you go back to him, say, six months or a year or two later and try and repair it, or did you just let it lie and say, well, it's just, it just ended the way it ended, and there's really nothing you can do about it? You know, there was there was a lot of ugliness that, you know, it had to do with a lot of things, some things completely unrelated to me, you know, things that he was dealing with. And it just, and, and also he, the, the, the exact way it went down, I thought was very inappropriate. Like I didn't feel like I had done anything wrong. My book came out and he was really saying a lot of things about my book that were just weren't true. In fact, he had to retract them on his uh, email list. Uh, uh, you know, he was saying, he was saying specifically I had cost him money when in fact I had made him money. So he was damaging my reputation in a way that wasn't true. And so, uh, and, and again, genius guys get like that. I've seen it all over the place. It's not unusual and I have nothing against him. But for me, uh, you know, the most important thing is to keep healthy. And that means physical health, mental health, emotional health spiritual health and being around people who I felt had mistreated me. There was no, there was no reason for me to ever really repair a uh, sure. relationship. Hey, Jason, I've got a question. Sure. Um, James, you seem to take great pride in bringing spirituality and money together. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, they're completely related because, you know, you figure, you know, what is money? People have a lot of uh, opinions about money. You know, for instance, they'll say things, they'll, they'll misquote, for instance, the Bible and say, uh, money is the root of all evil. Now I'm not, I don't know the Bible here nor there. I actually just heard that that was a mis that when you say the phrase money is the root of all evil, that's actually a misquote of love for money is the root of all evil. But I do think, I do think money is nothing really. So it's really a matter of what you do with it. So do you create jobs with it? Do you, uh, in, enjoy your freedom with it? Do you provide for your family with it? Do you give to charity with it? Do you create new businesses and products and hire more employees with it? So money is very valuable to create a lot of good in the world. But most importantly for me, it creates freedom so I could pursue other things I'm interested in. Uh, and, you know, I hope to, I, I, I hope all of us can be as, as free as possible. Like, you know, Probably nobody on this phone has a hundred million dollars, but you know, hopefully we're all, we're all on our way towards it. Well, so um, it, why don't we jump back on the story then? So you know, it's what two thousand 
four or five and you decided to get a out of trading personally and into managing a, a fund yeah, of yeah, funds. Oh, one more thing I want to mention about Victor. And okay. like literally when he was, um, you know, going on and on about my book, I was practically in a fetal position wondering why is he doing this? But right. the reality is that was the best possible thing that could have ever happened to my book. Cause he's so everybody literally thought it was his trading systems that I had written about, <laughs> even though it right. wasn't. So they're thinking like, Oh my gosh, Victor Niederhofer's trading systems are top secret. I'm going to, I'm about to get them all by reading James Altucher's book. So a ton of people bought this book and it was my best selling book ever. And Barron's had it as one of their books of the year. Uh, the stock traders almanac had it as the book of the year. So it was great for me. And let me be honest, I don't even know what Victor's trader trading systems are. So there's no way the book could have them, but it was a great thing for me overall. So, uh, you know, I'm grateful. I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity Victor gave me and for the ultimate outcome it, it had for me. So that, that, that's why they say, like, if you start, they, there's almost this advice that start a fight with somebody who's more famous or well-known than you, right? Because if they actually take the time to beat on you, it actually works in your favor. That's, that's right. <laughs> that actually happened to me the other day. Um, do you know who Naomi Klein is? Yeah, yeah. She's a... Um, She's a. She writes a lot about. Um, Paul, is she the one who wrote Disaster Capitalism? Yeah, I or think she's the one who right, writes yeah. letters to. Or there's two of there's there's two Naomi's. One is uh, Disaster Capitalism. Another one is Letters to an American Patriot or something, warning about fascism and things like that. You know, I I don't know uh, which one she is, but I know she's some sort of pundit about something. I don't I don't even know, <laughs> but I know she's like famous for something. So anyway, someone forwarded her. Uh, the title of my last latest book, which is uh, the Wall Street Journal Guide to Investing for the Apocalypse. And so right. she tweeted um, something like, this book is gross. And so I, of course, thought, this is great. This is going to be just like <laughs> Peter Hoffer. So I'm like, well, did you actually read the book? And she said on Twitter, no, but the jacket copy uh, appears gross. And I said, so just to be clear, you judge a book by its cover. <laughs> she said why don't you get back to investing in the apocalypse because you're not going to have a tweet war with me and that was that well it was worth a shot right it was worth a shot yeah so because right. I, I don't know who she is i don't care who she is although i do think it was she probably shouldn't have judged the book by its cover but whatever i was happy to roll with it yeah i just looked up her i just looked up her wikipedia page and it, her, her big book was the shock doctrine the rise of disaster capitalism um, which is pretty well known. So yeah, that's that's interesting. So um, yeah, okay, why don't we pick up with the story then? Well, okay. So 2004. Uh, you know, actually, I, I think I probably missed a, a story or two in there because uh, I actually skipped uh, 1999 or 2000. I start I started a whole other company, raised 100 million for it, then started a VC fund. But we could. We, well, hey, that sounds interesting. Don't skip that. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened to the hundred million in the VC fund? Well, okay, so so um, I had this idea, which is that I did, just did well creating websites for people. Now I wanted to create wireless presences for uh, all the Fortune 500 companies. So so because uh, you know basically phones were starting to get on the internet and so on. Just that the was when WAP was like the 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 exactly. big word WAP. This, WAP, that. Exactly. WAP, and there was um, J2ME, which was like the Java for essentially for WAP. And um, so 
So what I did was I, I started a company developing wireless software, but I had no idea how to how to do wireless software, and I, and I wanted to ramp up very quickly because every, everybody was going public then. This was during the, I don't call it an internet bubble. I don't think there was an internet bubble, but I do think there was an IPO bubble for a very brief moment. And so I wanted to go public immediately, even though I had no company, no software, no product, no revenues, no cash. So I, um, I called up about 20 companies and said, 20 companies in the wireless space, and I said, I wanted to buy your company. So one of them uh, came through and said, look, we're about to get bought by Ericsson, but if you have a com- competing offer, we'll take it. And I said, okay, Ericsson's offering you 17, I'll offer you 20, half cash, half stock. Ericsson was offering, I think, mostly stock. I forget the exact details of their, uh, of their deal. And wait, wait, already- you had $100 million in the bank for a VC firm? Is that when you're using to buy these wireless firms? No, no, no. This See- is separate. So did you have the money to buy these firms or were you just... No, uh, no, I didn't. I didn't have any money at all. <laughs> so so <laughs> did you get the, So you just made the offer without having the money. You, you, that was an, a, a detail to be filled in later. Exactly. So, so <laughs> I, got, I got a binding letter of intent from them. This so is they, just like they, walking into the HBO office again. It, it, exactly. It is. <laughs> I, I didn't even think of that. So I got a, I got a binding letter of intent from these guys and the company was called Mobile Logic and they were based in Denver. I got a binding letter of intent, spelled out all the details, and I had like three or four months to buy them. So, and so I needed to raise, you know, essentially about $30 because I figured I needed to buy more companies as well. So I, now I actually had a company with an asset. So what was my asset? It was this binding letter of intent. No one could take that away from me. It was my asset that I owned. So Wait, they didn't do any due diligence on you and say, hey, we want to see some financials from you to figure it out? No, they, they did. They knew, I was, they knew that's what I was going to do. But, uh, you know, this was 1999. I had just sold a company. Um, I had a lot of high-powered friends. And, uh, uh, you know, New York City was a little bit late into the game. So they weren't, it wasn't like Silicon Valley where, you know, there was Kleiner Perkins all over the place. So all of the private equity firms wanted to get into the space but 1999 was the year they would do it. So basically, all these private equity firms, uh, you know, saw my binding letter of intent, figured we would be able to go public almost instantly, and they all put in money. So CMGI, the big internet company, CMGI gave me five million. InvestCorp, which was a private equity firm, gave me another five. Allen and Company, it's a famous uh, buyout firm or consulting firm, they gave me uh, uh, one million. I cut them down from five. Henry Kravis. Wanted to put five in. I had to cut him down to one. Uh, Leo Hindry put money in. Frank Quatrone, Sam Waxel. Uh, just wow. And so you, did you just know these people through connections? Was this a, a network through, that you've been building up over the last few? Through, the- through connections. And the network built up in 30 seconds. Like it was 1999. I didn't know anybody. Let's not forget, two years earlier, I was interviewing prostitutes in the street in, for, in <laughs> Tuesday morning at three in the morning. So I didn't know anything. But right away, like bankers were willing to help me. So did you buy? So what happened? So I raised thirty million, bought the company. I was the CEO. Suddenly, I'm flying out to Denver. I'm like running this company. Um, we set up an office on Forty Wall Street here. Uh, we bought another company, another consulting company called Katahdin. They had nice uh, profits, so we we figured that would be good for the IPO story. And uh, <laughs> uh, I brought in I brought in a CEO who was a uh, you know, in his fifties, had run a consulting company before, so a much 
better fit for the role of CEO than, than me. I was a horrible CEO. I mean, I just, I couldn't, I, I, I'm really not a good CEO. And so, uh, so he came in and then literally the banks started pitching us. Like I remember Merrill Lynch came in and, uh, they had the, they had the main banker. They had the whole team there. They had, they handed out pitch books for everybody. The banker says, uh, Roy, why don't you, uh, start going through the pitch book? And this little kid named Roy said, uh, my name's John. <laughs> the banker's like, okay, John, then just go through the pitch book. And so they're going through it. And then they're even saying crazy stuff like, like Henry Blodgett's going to be the analyst on this. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Like Henry Blodgett's, you know, the, an internet consumer analyst. We're like a wireless enterprise, you know, business, but whatever the back page, they compared us to all the other companies that were public. So the most extreme case was Aether systems had like 3 million in revenues, but a $9 billion market cap. So in that scenario, I think I was worth about $900 million on the back page. If we were compared to them and, uh, you know, but, you know, Goldman Sachs pitched us CS first Boston and ultimately, we decided on CS First Boston to take us public. Like, we were going to start going public. And uh, then, then the bubble burst. And, you know, then we considered all sorts of other options, like merging with another company. And then they raised, an, uh, you know, I was no longer CEO. And I, I got off the board as well because I really I just didn't have anything to offer at this point. And then um, and there was a lot of investors. So they wanted their money taken care of. So we raised another round. I think altogether, they probably raised close to a hundred million. Uh, the most prominent investor we had, and you would think I've named a lot of pretty prominent names like CMGI, Henry Kravis, Frank Quatrone. The most prominent investor we had was a, a young man named Yasser Arafat. So <laughs> after Yasser Arafat died, it turned out his largest or second largest investment in the U S was in my company. It was, uh, uh, it was, our name at the time was called Vaultus. We had changed our name from Mobile Logic, and uh, he had done it through a, a vehicle that he had secretly had in the U.S. Wow. So did the company make money, or did, you, did it lose everything? I mean, what happened to the company? Um, you know, ultimately, it probably, well, first of all, I, quite correctly, I did not make a dime off of this company. Um, for the, some of the later investors... I am not sure, to be honest, but it did get acquired recently, about a year or so ago, by a company called Antenna Software. But I don't know the terms of the deal. I, I've been far removed from the company. So, um, <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, okay, so why don't we jump forward in time? I would, there's one thing you mentioned about a VC firm in there somewhere. Oh, yeah. So, so around the same time that we were starting Vaultus, uh, InvestCorp, uh, was impressed enough with me and some of my partners that they gave us about a hundred million to manage in a VC fund. But you know, this was in—I think we opened up doors like on March nineteenth, two thousand, like the literally the peak of the Nasdaq. And wow. you know, we 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 made a few investments, but not much. We invested hardly any of the money, and then by two thousand and one, we essentially we had a ten-year deal with InvestCorp, and by two thousand one, we essentially sold back the deal to InvestCorp. So nope. and then they and then they wanted me to be an employee there, but I had been just building all these trading systems, and I figured, you know what, I'm going to make a gazillion dollars trading the market. So, uh, and I needed to make money trading because I didn't have enough money to to live in my house. So I decided not to be uh, an employee once they absorbed up the firm. The firm still exists, but it's now completely part of InvestCorp. 
Right. Now, when you were trading, uh, I imagine, it, at least initially until you went later with Niederhofer, you were trading your own money. I mean, were you trading enough to, um, I mean, did you have enough capital to make any real revenue? I mean, any real profits, I guess? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was making a good living from it. I think what happened, though, was then I started aggressively raising money on my own, like other managed accounts. And uh, then I helped one of my investors sell his company. So suddenly he had an enormous amount to trade and he really wanted me to trade it. And so I, I had a much bigger amount and that was, that was good for a while, but it was just, it was around that time that I decided to make the switch into something less stressful. Instead of, instead of day trading $50 million, uh, you know, allocating that in a more institutional way in a fund of funds. What do right. you recommend to, this is a kind of an off the, an off the wall question. But if you're talking to people who are very unsophisticated and they're not involved in investment and stock market, they say, look, I've got 10 grand to put somewhere. What do you recommend to people like that? Um, I recommend they put it in themselves. So, uh, you know, you cannot make more than 10% a year in the best, uh, in the best case scenario uh, trading the markets, you know, in the long run. So, so really, there's no way for them to, to make money trading. Uh, and I would never recommend that. And I would keep the money under a mattress. But, uh, but I do think people can make multiples of 100% if they invest in themselves. So, for instance, if you're, if you're a photographer, buy photography equipment or get classes or get more software. Or if you're an artist, buy yourself time or materials or whatever to, to do what you need to do. Or, or if you're an entrepreneur, $10,000 is enough to recreate you know, any internet website out there using, you know, offshore resources. So, you know, when I started stockpicker.com, the entire first go of the site, which ended up signing up, you know, thousands of, of visitors, uh, the whole thing cost me about $3,000, the first round of it. So you can, you can, you, it's, it's very possible to come up with 40 or 50 different ideas you can do with $10,000 where you're investing in yourself instead of just putting it in Microsoft stock or some speculative penny stock that may or may not double or go to zero. Like the stock market is very stressful and I, I stay out of it. Have you written a blog it. post about this? Um, I'm not sure actually. Cause, uh, cause it sounds like you should, cause that sounds like awesome advice. Yeah. I was going to say 40 ways to turn $10,000 yeah. to a million or something yeah, like that. I that mean, really does sound like... good. <laughs> It's, so, it's, it's funny. I, 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 do, um, I do an exercise every day where I think of something I want to make a list about and I try to list as many things as possible. So the other day, someone on Quora asked a random question, um, what sort of businesses uh, can you start from your home? And I just started answering on, on that and then I answered my answer and uh, I try, it, it, it hurt. It, when you do an exercise like that, it's almost like you're stretching, you know, like you're touching your toes, stretching. Like it almost hurts your brain to try to think of just that one more thing you can do. So I, I, I did a Quora thing similar to this just the other day uh, where I tried to come up with as much as possible, but I, I forget what I said. I forget everything I said now. <laughs> oh, I, I think I had, I think, I, no, there's one that I remember where I thought of uh, uh, penny auction arbitrage. There's all these penny auction sites starting. Have you ever seen one of those? Like, bid sauce or qui bids. So the idea is uh, these penny auction sites are auctioning items off for a penny, and every time you bid, the price goes up a penny, but you pay 75 cents per bid. So they right. make money selling the bids, 
but they might sell an iPad for 10 bucks. But that means 1,000 people bid, so they make a $250 profit if they're selling each bid for 75 cents. So, but the, the brand new penny auction sites are all unprofitable. They're unprofitable because no one's going to them, and so they're losing money per item. So you could buy items for almost nothing on these on beginning penny auction sites and then auction them off on eBay. And so that's one thing you could just do all day long like as an arbitrage. And uh, so I was trying to think of more businesses like that from home. <laughs> so, oh, well, to get back on this story, though, because I don't want to get too far off because, uh, you know, you, 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 you went to – at some point, you started writing for Jim Cramer and TheStreet.com, and then you started Stock Picker. So what led up to those, those, those things happening? Yeah, so, so just on the writing side, I was writing for TheStreet.com. Then I started writing for The Financial Times, a weekly column every Tuesday in the print version. Then I, I wrote my second book. I wrote my third book. I wrote uh, – I started my fourth book. Uh, and, um, and I was writing more and more for, for, for the street.com. Like I was really becoming a presence on the site and people knew who I was. And I started going on CNBC and, um, at the same time, my fund of funds was growing. And at one point a bank offered to buy the fund of funds and then I would be part of the bank and, um, they would want me to be involved in all their alternative asset management. And they made a nice offer for the fund of funds but the problem was they wanted me to sign a six-year employment agreement, and they wouldn't back down on that. And it was just too much for me. Like, I couldn't sign myself up for slavery. I had never worked anywhere for six years. And they were buying me for stock, so I, I didn't want to take the chance that the stock would fall, and then I'd be stuck there in this empl- locked-up employment agreement for six years. So I, I had to say no. And so when it occurred to myself and my business partner, Dan, that we, we just looked at each other and we were like, look, we've been building this fund of funds and we had this offer, but it turned out they just wanted us. They didn't really want, there was no equity value in the business, which we was our whole goal in starting the business. So we immediately, you know, I guess, they, I guess the, the hot phrase right now is pivot. Uh, so we immediately pivoted. This was mid-2006. We unwound the fund of funds and, and it was doing great. We had no problems. Our investors were actually upset that we were winding it down. Um, we unwound the fund of funds, and we decided we were going to go back to m- my roots, which was making websites. So we took about, uh, let's say, ten to fifteen thousand dollars, and made four or five websites, and would watch to see which ones would flourish. And wait, hold on, hold on. Let's say, so this is what about two thousand six or so? Yeah, mid two thousand six. And and you said you said t- you know two to, you said you about three or four websites that you spent ten to fifteen thousand dollars on. And were those just yeah. outsourced to, say, India or something, and, and they just built yeah, something two, to spec? Two different companies, yeah, in Bangalore. They were outsourced to spec. Uh, you know, I had a computer science background, so I, was, I basically micromanaged uh, their development of, it, of these sites. So that helped keep the costs way down. Um, because they would try to say, oh, no, this little HTML page costs another $300. And I would say, no, I'll just send it over to me. I'll do that part for free. And... Uh, yeah. So they, they just stopped BSing me after a while, and you know everything was cheap. And they, and they like so. It so what, were the, what were the other? What were the other, what were the um, different versions of the sites that you created? You said you had Stockbroker was one of them. You had yeah, the they were they, they were so bad. Like I really wanted to create a dating site, so I I wanted to um so I created one site that was uh, uh cutie.com, dot com k e a u t y dot com. I, I don't own the domain name anymore. 
And, uh, you know, I had another one. I wanted it to be like hot or not. Uh, so I called it smartorstupid.com. <laughs> so the idea <laughs> is you would look at a picture and you would vote on what you thought the woman's IQ was. And then you would see her results and the answer she wrote on an IQ test. And then you could decide if you wanted to date her or not. So it was just, these were just like pathetic ideas. But then I made a more abstract version of them that allowed you to create any kind of uh, ranking site. It was sort of like a meta hot or not um, where you could make anything. And I, I, that was a little bit interesting. I bet you I could have pursued that a little bit more. But, you know, my real expertise was the financial media world. And it was easy for me once I started Stock Picker. I, what I did was I immediately went to the street.com and the CEO, great guy named Tom Clark, he's not the CEO there anymore. Uh, I said to Tom, look, you know, this social media is becoming hot. MySpace had just been acquired. The street.com should have a social media solution. How about you work with me on this? And so he said, absolutely. And I said, okay, great. You could take 10% of it uh, and we'll take, you could put ads all over our site. And he said, great, we'll take 50% of it and we'll put ads all over your site. And I said, <laughs> I said, yes, because why there's no, there's no point in negotiating 50%, you know, and there was even a blog that criticized me afterwards. Um, but you know, 50% of nothing of something is better than 10% of, or 90% of nothing. So, yeah. and here my partner was the street.com and you know, when, when they own 50% of something, that means it's important to them. 10%, they could throw it away later and, and who cares, but 50% was important to them. So I basically upped the number of articles I was doing per day for them. I was writing like three or four articles per day for them, even on the weekends. And I was always driving traffic back onto Stock Picker. So Stock Picker was getting a lot of traffic. Uh, they were putting ads all over the site. So the site was profitable from day one, just like my first business, uh, which was the website development business. My second successful business was profitable from, from the beginning. And that's, that's the only way I've been able to do uh, successful businesses ever. You know, it kind of reminds me of that I remember hearing a saying about trading is that if a trade's going to work, it usually starts working right away. I think, that that's, I think that's true. You know, I think that's, you know, a lot of times, you know, because you, I mean, I, you know, not to go too deep in the trading discussion again, but it's like if a trade starts going against you and you just keep holding on and holding on, usually that's a pretty bad sign. And if it starts working right away, then it's like something you want to lay into a little bit and try and understand. And it sounds like with businesses the same way. And, you know, and it's like, what you did with these four or five little ideas is you dipped your toe in and, and something started to work right away. And you just said, all right, now let's just let's press on it. Let's leverage into it. That's right. I, I, I trimmed all my losses, uh, like meaning I got rid of all the sites that were not working. And like I said, I don't even know if I own the domain names or not anymore. I just never looked at them again. And, uh, uh, but you know, by the way, in all of this, I had a, an enormous amount of failure. So, I mean, in some degree, if I had let failure get to me, I would just, I don't know what I would have done. Like, you know, Vaultus, for me, the wireless thing didn't work out too well. The venture fund didn't work out too well for me. Trading worked out well, but it wasn't like a home run. Uh, the fund of funds worked out well, but it wasn't, you know, a home run for me. I built all these websites, you know, only one of them worked out. Uh, what about the writing? How would you, how would you, um, Classify the writing outcome. The writing, the writing was great, and I was, I would say, I was making a, li well, I was making a living always from the trading and from the fund of funds, but I was also making a living from the writing. But you can't do that anymore. Like the the price per 
unit of content now has kind of gone towards zero. So it's very hard to make money writing, I think. It's too commoditized. Uh, it is very commoditized, and there's a lot of people out there because of the blogging world. James, uh, what, what, what are you buzzing about now? What, where are you at at this moment? Right now, I'm, I'm writing for the Wall Street Journal, and I just had a book come out called Investing for the Apocalypse. And But the, I guess the two things I'm most excited about, uh, you know, and I go on CNBC quite a bit. I'm going on CNBC tomorrow night to talk about the markets and so on. But the things that I'm really excited about is I have a uh, – a blog, jamesaltucher.com, that I have no idea why I'm excited about it or what <laughs> direction it's going in. And on the whole, I get positive feedback, but every now and then I get you know, people who upset me. But I, don't, I honestly don't know what I'm doing with this blog, but the, the traffic has gone up enormously. I, I got about 200,000 visitors over the past month, and I just started in, in late October, early November. Uh, and I don't write about stocks at all. Like, I never write about stocks on this blog i write about yeah, well, you, you see you seem like you're almost you're you're just on a on an output tear because I, yesterday i think you had like two major posts come out yesterday even i mean i was i, I refreshed your browser just to I, I was reading a page and then i was like i was trying to come you know write down a question or two and i went to refresh and i'm like wait a minute well this is a different article and i'm on the front page again I, i've probably been writing well you know sometimes i'm writing like three to five thousand words a day you know and that's a bunch of posts and then other days i don't write as much or you know sometimes it's a couple days like it's probably going to be a couple days now before i do another post just because i have to travel a little bit but my my goal is there is to basically be as honest as possible about you know the types of careers people go through in both the finance space and in the entrepreneurial space and then to hopefully give valuable advice to people and you know sometimes people like it sometimes people don't but I, I honestly don't know what to do with the blog, though. What I was going to say is, um, it, in a small way, do you, do you remember that movie where there was this news anchor man who just started telling the truth? Yeah, it was called Network. It sort of reminds me of like, it's, it's almost like you've taken an approach like that. So you're, you've got this blog and you're just being very honest and almost spiritual. Um, it's, it's interesting. And it's, Thank it's, you. Yeah, I, that's, that's been my goal with it. And you know, it's funny. Some people, some people honestly can't handle the honesty like they, it, they don't understand it and it almost offends them so i've offended some people too through this blog but you know and i tend i guess in order to really be honest you have to not care at all about the people you're offending so that's that's part of my dilemma here but i always try to make sure i'm not hurting anybody at least with my honesty like i'll protect the names of the innocent so they say well, you you you, were, you 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 said some things about uh, that you learned from Jim Cramer, um, and a couple of them being that you got to be honest and you got to bleed. Um, yeah, like Jim Cramer's written a bunch of books, but the only book I really love, like it's like an investment classic, is his Confessions of a Street Addict, his very first book. And I forget what chapter it is, maybe chapter seven. He t- discusses. Uh, how he almost went out of business in, I guess, fall of 98. And it was just a real, like, I could feel it. Like, it was a painful ride for him. And also, the first few weeks when he started his fund, I think that was, like, 1990 or 1989, was, like, a painful ride for him. And I really appreciated that honesty. Like, I thought he did a good job at it. And, and look, Jim Cramer doesn't hold back, as you could see on his show. Like, he's, he's all out there. And he gets a lot of people who, who hate him for it. Like, you know, everybody should take responsibility for their own investment decisions. But 
a lot of bad stuff has happened to people in the past three years. They lost money in the stock market. They lost money in housing. They lost their job. Maybe their parents never loved them. Maybe their wife left them. You know, and so they need an outlet for that anger. And someone who's going to go on TV like that, like like a Jim Cramer, um, you know, they're going to take it out on him. Or in a much smaller way, they're going to take it out on me for whatever reason. Uh, or other people who, who try to be honest. Have you considered just being an out-and-out video and audio um, rather than just text uh, web personality, something like Gary Vaynerchuk or Chris Perillo or Leo Laporte? Well, I think I think as the joke goes, I think really I have a face for the for text. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you actually remind point. me a little bit of Malcolm Gladwell with it with your with your haircut. I was thinking, yeah. you get a little of that going it, on. It does. It doesn't matter. I don't think it matters that much. I think I, to, for, I saw from seeing you being interviewed. I think you could definitely pull it off. You know, it's funny on TV. I don't know if I do such a good job, but sometimes on like web videos, I do a good job. Uh, but. Uh, I don't know, and I, I enjoy writing. Like I spent a lot of time uh, in the early '90s, really kind trying to hone the skill. And even though I didn't get anything published, I feel like the years of effort I put into it, I'm now able to apply in this enjoyable way, and people seem to be responding to it. And uh, it's, it's less work in a way. Like you, you, you can kind of define your own time, and you can write your pieces over a, over a cup of coffee rather than having to. Yeah, and I think also people watch them, I mean, read the text over a cup of coffee while they're at work, as opposed to um, watching videos, which are kind of a slower pace. Right. You know, so it's just, it's just a different type of audience. So I think my audience likes my writing. I, I'd have to build a video audience um, for them. You know, what about, um, what are your thoughts, I guess, on ebooks and sort of the rise of self-publishing? Because that seems like that would be, a, a route for you where you would be able to make more income and have more control over what you're, what you're doing. Yeah, I agree. And I've really been thinking a lot about this, like, uh, uh, because look, what, we all know the problems with publishing. First of all, the, the bookstores don't carry books anymore. Like if you go into the bar, bar, first of all, borders is out of business and they're going to probably shut all the stores down. Yeah. They just shut down ours down the corner. It was really, really depressing. Yeah. Well, and Barnes and Noble shutting down stores too. It's, they're just being more quiet about it. And uh, they're not going to go out of business, but you go to the floor of a Barnes and Noble, it's all taken up by Nook sales. So it's you know, so so you can't. There's no more book distribution in bookstores. And how do the what do the publishers do for you other than give you an advance and market your book? Which you know, all marketing is online anyway. So if you don't, you, you need your own platform to market your book anyway. Uh, publishers don't do much other than give an advance and they, and then they take a long time to publish your book. So, you know, and it's funny, I was considering doing another book. I talked to Wiley about, uh, doing a book on, um, a hundred alternatives to college. So kids don't have to go to college, but you know, they, they got nervous because they make all the textbooks for, (laughs) (laughs) so so then I'm thinking, well, why don't I just self-publish this? And I, and I might. Like, I, I do think there's opportunity in ebooks. Uh, a friend of mine just made an ebook uh, about stocks, and he sold. He, he priced the book at eighty dollars or ninety dollars. He sold twenty five hundred copies of his book, which you know is not a large amount if you're publishing through a publisher. But if you're making a hundred percent of the margin yourself. And you're selling for ninety dollars a copy, and you sell twenty five hundred books. And he did it in a three or four week period. That's mm. not so bad. That's a no, business. That's great. Yeah, if he started doing, you know, it, it was a twenty page book. 
So if he started doing 10 books a month, I think he could have a real publishing company. And so I think there's a, I think there is a strong business opportunity right now to take down the traditional publishers. You have to figure out the right mix and the right marketing strategy. But I think that, I think the opportunity is huge. There's a really interesting idea that has been talked about a bit about the idea of having 10,000 true fans. That if you have 10,000 true fans, then that's enough to, say, make a living off of. And it sounds like with your ability to build a platform via your blog and your ability to really crank out material and, and possibly self-publish, that that would be a, a, a route. I mean, you could obviously go beyond, quite beyond 10,000 true fans. You know, that's interesting. I never, I never knew that about the 10,000 true fans. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm almost sort of afraid to ask my audience for anything. Um, but, you know, I've got some, some time I can play with. So uh, that, that's an interesting idea. Eventually, I want to do another book sort of thing. Um, but right now, I'm really enjoying the blog. And I don't know if I'd get as many readers reading a book so, so for instance, for me to write, like, let's say, a book of kind of articles about all these different business experiences, uh, it's much better for me to do it as a blog because that's how I'll get the most readers. But maybe if I was going to do like a novel or like this college thing, then um, you know maybe an ebook would be would be better. Maybe we could do a part two if you guys, because uh, we're running out of time here. Oh yeah, and I, I guess the only other thing is I sold Stock Picker, and then. I've been involved in a couple of other things since then, but right now I've been focused on on my blog, jamesaltucher.com. Well, how, how much time? How much time do you have? Um, I could probably do another ten minutes. Well, that, that, that stock picker story would be very interesting. Uh, well, well, basically, uh, you know, we we launched the site towards the end of '06, and then we made the official announcement of the deal with the street.com that they were going to be a fifty-fifty partner in it uh, on the first day of January of two thousand seven. And immediately I put a for sale sign on the company. And at the time we were getting about a, a million unique visitors a month, we were profitable. And so I went to, I think I approached Google, Yahoo, AOL, Forbes, Reuters, Interactive Corp, maybe even other companies I can't even remember. And I was trying to get an offer. And Jason's story about Google made me think of like my experience with Google, which is just that. I literally fell in love with Google, like <laughs> visiting their headquarters, seeing how smart the employees were. Like it just, it reminded me of graduate school, it, like all the positive aspects of graduate school. And I like really, like I woke up in the middle of the night, the way you might wake up if you meet a girl you fall in love with. Like I <laughs> was like sweating for Google and, uh, but alas, they, they did not want to put more resources into their Google finance pr uh, product. I think how many were, meetings did you have with them? Uh, I just had one meeting, but it went like great. So it was like love. Did you get and to eat in the famous Google uh, restaurant? No, no. I I saw you know people enjoying themselves like skateboarding, ping pong, whatever. Um, but and I even had to sign up a, a release saying I wasn't allowed to discuss what I saw in Google's headquarters. And I signed the wrong release. So they made me come back again and sign another release. Like they were very serious about it. Uh, I don't even know if I should be talking about it right now. But the, the reality is, uh, it was, I didn't see all that much. But uh, I, I don't think you're breaking any terms of uh, terms of conditions to say that you saw people skateboarding. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, overall, though, the street.com decided, look, we can't have Google own 
this product. Like this is part of the street.com now. So they basically bought the half that they didn't own. And uh, we did it based on a multiple of projected earnings. And I always kind of complain to people, uh, I'm probably the only guy in the world in the internet business who twice sold an internet company on a multiple of earnings. Like everybody else sells Twitter for $9 billion and I have to be like at a 10 times EBITDA. Uh, <laughs> so, so so who did you actually sell it to in the end? Um, I, I the said street, that in the the street.com. The street.com. Okay, so they, they bought the, f- the first 50%. And yes, then, and, and then, then they, they just went the whole way. Yeah, they have the first fifty percent for free, and then they they went the whole way. And then I, I stayed there for another two years, and then left uh, to start, you know, pursuing other stuff. And and now I've I've so in addition to my blog, the main thing I have going on, and you know, in addition to the writing other stuff, is I'm I'm invested in about a dozen uh, angel investments. Interesting. Oh, really? Can you or can you talk? About How did you find them? Yeah. Uh, most of them through my network of, of friends built up over the years. So, uh, unfortunately my friends aren't people like Peter Thiel or Ron Conway or anything like that. But, uh, so I'm not in, I'm not in Twitter or Facebook or all these other cool investments, but I'm in, uh, bit.ly I'm in buddy media. Uh, I'm, I'm in a, a handful of, of what I consider to be good investments. They're, they're all, they're all doing well. Does, um, are, are you, do you participate in AngelList? I know that's becoming a big deal all of a sudden and actually a lot of controversy around it. Yeah, you know, and, it, and it's funny. Bryce, who wrote the recent um, post about AngelList, he and I were both on Bitly's board together. So I know, I know kind of where Bryce is coming from. But uh, I, 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 like, uh, I like the idea of AngelList. I have no problem with it. I like seeing companies. And whenever I haven't invested in anything off of AngelList, but they all, they all, some of them look interesting to me. But I haven't gotten close enough to see what the valuations are. So for me, everything is, uh, you know, every I, I have several rules. One is the CEO had to have done it before. He had to sell a company before. Two, there has to be great co-investors. So I'm happy if, if Ron Conway's in there, I'm happy to be in there, even though I know he tends to be in everything. Um, I like there to be a, a very cheap valuation. So, you know, Particularly if it's on AngelList, I know a lot of VCs are looking at it. I'd still like to have like a a one to three million dollar valuation. I don't know if that's going to be possible on AngelList, and I like to see a clear path to uh, revenues and profitability. So those are sort of my rules, and I break them occasionally, but that's my general rules of angel investing. Right, right. Well, um, my, my general rules of all investing is you. I want someone smarter than me to do all the work. So the CEO has to be smarter than me about building and then selling his company. And the other VCs have to do more due diligence than I'm doing. Right. <laughs> how, how much do you look to put into an individual investment? Um, not much, like anywhere from 25 to 50. But sometimes I get a little group together and I'll put in, you know, 250 to 300. Oh, through the group. Like, but your individual participation is rarely above 50. Right. Okay. Okay. And the, the, the tops I've done, and I, I, I'm invested in a company called Cancer Genetics. It's a biotech company, and I have a, I have a hundred in that. Okay, and, and as a as a background in uh, writing code, uh, having a background in writing code, do you ever feel an itch to build one yourself as opposed to just investing in in other people's um, work? I do, but I think you know, sometime around uh, 2007. 
I decided to look at some code, like actual, like, you know, MySQL PHP code. And uh, I couldn't understand, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. And so here I've I got my bachelor's degree in computer science. I went to grad school for computer science. I was a professional programmer. I mean, I started two software companies. I was a professional programmer for 12 years. And I don't think I know how to program anymore. <laughs> well, like I'm sure you could. Fine. I'm sure you could relearn in, in in short order if you if you felt like it. You know, maybe I think I think what I'd have to do is I'd have to sit down like with the environment all set up for me and like a good book in front of me and one programmer sort of hanging out. And I bet you it would take me a day. But well, you know, you know that's actually what uh, one thing that Jess and I had always talked about. It'd be great if there was a service where you could log on and there'd be people who. You could pay by the hour. So you said, All right, I want to I want to rent your time for like four or eight hours. And you're, so you're an expert in Ruby or Python or whatever. And f- I want you to sort of sort of coach me, step me through this. I'll write the code. But screen you just sharing. Kinda, screen sharing and video and just have them walk you through it and just sort of get you through maybe five to ten times faster than you could by yourself with a book. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Although I think uh, that really books are not so bad, and humans are kind of annoying to learn programming from. Like, because if you don't really <laughs> understand what they're saying, then it's like you get confused. Books are good. Like, the best thing is to get a well-written piece of code in like a good, and you're you have a good, clean environment set up so, and that you understand, and you get a good-looking piece of code and you modify it, and you use a book to play around with modifying it. Like that always worked for me in the past. I've learned every language I know from, from doing that. Right, right. Well, um, so I, I know we got to wrap this thing up, but I, I want to ask you one more sort of question, um, you know, just sort of in the financial area, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of controversy about, you know, what's going on with the dollar and the Fed and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and, and since you have so, so, much back, so much background in this area, I'd be very curious on what your take is on that, on what the Fed is doing and what is doing buying up treasuries and what you think the future of the dollar is and, and, and all of that? Well, I think the Fed is doing several things. One is the Fed wants more people to be employed. So how will you guys, for instance, hire somebody? Well, you'll only hire somebody if more money is put in your pocket because then you have money to hire somebody. So the Fed is just printing so much money that – uh, it's forcing banks. They, they just, banks just have too much money in their hands and private equity firms and VC funds, they just have too much money in their hands. So they have to give it out to entrepreneurs and the innovators and creators in society. So ultimately, and by ultimately, I mean six to 12 to 18 months from now, ultimately the economy is going to be flourishing so much. It's almost going to feel like another bubble. Even right now, people say bubble, but that's ridiculous. Like we're just barely out of, uh, you know, the worst recession ever, but you know, the economy is, is doing very well now, but you can't say we're, uh, doing incredibly with 9% unemployment. There's still a lot of, uh, kind of despair underneath, but the fed is just going to keep printing money until that despair is gone. Well, it seems like it's kind of an it seems like it's kind of an interesting recovery because you know for people who are entrepreneurs and people who are trying to raise money for new businesses, you know it start it's starting to feel uh, like like you said a little bubbleish. But for people who are working more traditional industries, I mean the the actual real unemployment number is what I mean something approaching twenty percent. No, I don't know. I don't know what that actual number means. Like the the, the official government number is nine percent. But, uh, you know, the, the unemployment rate among college-educated people is 4% right now. So, mm-hmm. 
it could be that some industries have, have you know, they, they, they slashed too many jobs when they slashed inventories in the recession. So now that's starting to pick up and they're starting to hire. Layoffs are at an all-time low. Um, average hours work per week is at a, at a you know, a nice multi-year high. Uh, various economic indices in manufacturing and in the services industry are at multi-year highs. So all of this suggests, oh, temp workers, number of temp workers hired is at a multi-year high. So all of this suggests that full-time uh, employment is around the corner. So th- that'll, all, that'll all come back. And, um, you know, the danger is, is inflation. So what happens when you have inflation? Well, you have oil prices and food prices go up. So what's happening in the Middle East right now? Oil prices went up, but that's put in the pockets of all the corrupt leaders. Food prices go up and everybody starves. So they have unrest in the center of government. So that's why we're seeing all this suddenly. It's not out of nowhere. We're seeing all this Middle East unrest because people can't eat anymore because the food prices have gone up. So that's, that's, that's what Ron Paul keeps talking about, which is that we're exporting inflation. Right? Yes, exactly. And, and it, it's working. So what's going to happen is the good thing is the Middle East has a lot of slack in it. There's an enormous amount of oil wealth. They just have to stop putting it in the hands of the corrupt leaders. So they have to give it to the people to buy food. You know, Hosni Mubarak, they say, stole $200 billion. So there's a lot of slack there you can use to feed people. There's no reason those people should be, should be hungry. So meanwhile, here in the U.S., the dollar will eventually, not yet, but will eventually get weaker. No problem. We have this huge debt. So it's better for us when the dollar weakens because then we just owe less money. It's sort of it's we're as they describe that we're monetizing our debt in a way. I mean, yeah, if if the dollar will be worth fifty cents, you know, in today's dollars, so no problem. We'll be we'll be making so much money from the people buying our services abroad that uh, we'll have the money to pay back that debt. I mean, because that that was really the. I mean, the Fed has seemed to have no other choice if if a huge percentage of the voting public is underwater, about to be underwater on their mortgage, and you really just can't let those houses go back to, say, the... You, you can't let the, the housing prices get back in line with median income from circa, say, 1997 or 2000, because then everyone is in big, big trouble, in which case everyone's unhappy and votes everybody out of office. So it seems like, not only for financial reasons, but for political reasons, they couldn't let that happen. So their only choice is to monetize the debt, which is weaken the dollar in the long run. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's not such a bad thing. Like, you know, Ron Paul's big thing is, oh, well, the dollar has weakened 97% since 1913, since the Fed started. So the, the, a dollar is worth, a dollar then is only worth three cents now. And my thing to him is, all right, Ron, go back to 1913. Like, was life better then? No. I mean, literacy was worse then. Healthcare was worse then. Every conceivable aspect of our lives is better now. Um, by a factor of a thousand than it was in 1913. So there's no way you couldn't pay me to get in a time machine to go back to 1913. That would be worse than going to the worst developing country and having to use the bathroom there all the time. Like, sure. you know, I'm, I, I'm having slow, steady inflation is the best thing for uh, a capitalist economy. Well, it sounds like the. The, the, the one thing about that is, okay, so that may be true, but it seems like as an investment thesis, you're, it, it's almost guaranteed that governments over time are going to inflate their currencies, not only by you know policy, which is the Fed to say we're gonna, we, we like a nice steady slow inflation, but in times of trouble, they, they sort of inflate their ways out of problems. So the best thing to do then is always have some percentage of your net worth in things like silver or gold or oil or something like that. 
No, not necessarily. The best thing to have your money in is stocks. McDonald's gets over half their revenues from outside the U.S. So a weakening dollar benefits them. Exxon, Chevron. These are six, you know, Exxon has a $400 billion market cap. Chevron has a $200 billion market market cap. They get their, they get their money abroad also. So, uh, and you know, they benefit from rising oil prices. So all these big, huge companies benefit from a weakening dollar. Uh, Procter and Gamble, another huge company, benefits from a, a, a weakened dollar. So I think the, you know, gold ultimately is just a rock with no real value. But companies sure. hire people, they create products, they generate revenues, they they sell things and create dividends that they give to their shareholders. So stocks are the best hedge against inflation. And now the one danger is, will we have hyperinflation? That's never happened in the U.S. before, and I don't think it ever will. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of interesting because you're right. I mean, if if the dollar is inflated, um, then the, the stock market takes off, right? And the, and the stock price is, is just, the value of the stocks just change relative to the value of the dollar anyway. So that's just like owning, um, you know, any other commodity, right? I mean, if, if you own an index of stocks. I mean, is that true? Um, I'm sorry, repeat that question? Well, it, it's like, you know, if the dollar inflates, if it goes up or down, then everything else gets repriced in dollars. And that includes stocks themselves, just like, you know, gold or, or whatever, because it's like exactly. So, th so that's good for stocks, right? So that's kind of interesting. Now, there's, there's I remember reading something not too long ago where they're talking about, you know, they were saying like, well, in the end, you should just buy like an index fund which has, you know, essentially no or, or an ETF kind of thing which doesn't pay any kind of fees because when you buy mutual funds and all this stuff, in the end, it's eroding a lot of your gains. So if you just if you just owned an ETF like uh, the Spy or Spiders or whatever, that that's ultimately probably the best thing in terms of diversification and and everything else, participation in the market. Yeah, you know I think um, I think owning Spy is a good is a good investment. You know for for a broad portfolio. Right, right. So the bond, so your so your ultimate message is invest in yourself. But if you're going to put a little something somewhere, maybe put it into an index ETF or something. Yeah. Listen, Jason, this is an interesting direction, and we've actually wanted to do an entire show like this, haven't we? Um, so maybe that's something we should think about. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be happy to do like kind of a, you know, what, what's, you know, maybe Silicon Valley econ report or whatever you guys want to call it. That would be great, you know, and sometimes what we do is we've, we've done shows like that where we'll have kind of almost like a panel discussion show or have like, you know, we have one or two of a previous guests on just to talk about a series of topics like that. And it would be... Um, so yeah, I I do think it, I I think we need to let James go and live his life now. Well, right. thank you very much, you guys, and I'm I'm glad we were able to arrange something. Just out of curiosity, how many viewers do you think you guys get on a particular we'll, show? We'll get about on this one within a couple of weeks. We'll have about fifteen hundred people listen to it probably. That's great, and then and then it'll grow. But we've been growing quickly, we've been doubling about every three months. So people keep going back and listening to our back catalog. So within the next six months to a year, that could be multiples of that. Yeah. Okay, that'd be yeah. great. So. Well, great. Well, thanks, James, so much for coming on. It was a real pleasure meeting you, and I'm really enjoying your writing. So Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Thank absolutely. you. I enjoyed meeting you guys. I'll talk to you soon. All right. That's a wrap. We're out.